Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Well, on today's program, we are privileged to have a couple of really delightful guests joining us. Senior pastor from Centerfield Presbyterian Church in Fremont. And what a delight to have join us, Pastor Sam and Evie Nodneris. Great to have you both along. This is going to be an exciting conversation. Hey, thanks so much for having us, Craig. Love to get a chance to get to know a bit of both about your ministry and what God has been doing, but kind of take us back in, in your journey. You were mentioning to me before we uh, came on the air today that um, you folks came up from Southern California. You had been pastoring down in Arcadia for, my goodness, well over a decade, and um, God um, had a calling, and there was a bit of a paradigm shift, and suddenly, without having to get a passport, you came into a new land. <laughs> <laughs> because I would imagine it, there is some culture shock going from Southern California to the San Francisco Bay Area, but also at the same time, what a delight. In spite of the challenges of having this happen during the middle of COVID, you've really come into an area where, yeah, sin does abound, but grace even more so abounds. And what a delight to know that there's a chance here to practically minister and, and share the good news with anybody and everybody you run into. You know, it's interesting, Craig, because there's a call on our life to reach the nations. And that was the beginning of how we found out about Centerville. I was actually in a group uh, of pastors we call Presbytery, and all our sister churches are together. And I was not yet part of the Presbytery, but I was hanging out because they just love Jesus and love the Bible. And we're a great group of churches. And we were around a table, and this group of churches said, we're going to adopt a particular people group. And then they said the name, they said Pashtun. And then the Lord almost just whispered in my ear, there was nothing audible, but it's like I heard in my spirit, Sam, you're going to be part of that. And I thought, well, Lord, I, I've never heard of these people. I don't know anything about them, but okay. I, I went home and I talked to my wife, Evie, and said, honey, we, we need to pray about this. It, I felt like the Lord told me we're going to be part of reaching this people group. Well, long story short, Fremont's known as a little cobble and has one of the greatest uh, concentrations of Afghans around. And this particular people group is part of the Afghan country, and uh, Bay Area has a large concentration. So this church, just down the street from Little Kabul, asked me to send my resume. And so that was part of how I knew that the Lord wanted us to come here. This has been kind of a fascinating journey. Evie, you guys were uh, pastoring down in uh, Georgia, I understand, for well over a decade before you made the transition to Southern California, now to Northern California. How has that transition been like for the family in terms of how different these areas are? You've gone from the Bible Belt region, essentially, of the country to a part of the country that's not even the Bible suspenders. For us, I feel like it's really been beautiful to see just where God has called us to love and what people group he's called us to lean into. So I feel like while we spent time in the South, there was very much this ask of us to sit well with people who believed in a more of a cultural Christianity. And so the, the, the youth that we worked with often came from families that were Christian but they didn't know what it really meant to have this personal, deep, abiding, growing relationship with Christ. And so the challenge for us was, how do we make Jesus accessible and real to a people whose language is really crafted around him sounding that way, but it's not fleshing out through their soul in necessarily the way that they live or move or breathe or have their being in the world? 
And so that was in a sense, a different kind of people group. And then when we moved to Southern California, God was very clear that he wanted us to reach the Chinese community group. And so we began to open up our home and have people live with us from China. And again, getting to see our family grow and its understanding of the cultural language of Mandarin and loving people well who felt displaced that they didn't have community or family. Um, that again, drew us closer together, I believe, as a family and having a passion for that community group. And then the shift here, I feel, was probably the harder one because that was the time when my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so it was during that point that we were trying to adjust to being here and trying to adjust to helping him acclimate to this community. And I would say the most beautiful thing that happened was my dad was a world traveler, went around the world setting up stock exchanges for other countries. And he loved India as a country of above all countries. And literally walking at our front door where God placed us here in Fremont, he can see people from not only all over the world, but our Indian population is beautifully large. And so he just can have conversations that are so familiar uh, as he walks around our neighborhood and feels very loved by our church. Because again, there are people from all over the world who come to our church. Yeah. And one of the things I love to do is uh, take a jog at the end of the day. And when I jog through my neighborhood, I smell the best Indian food wafting out into the into the streets. And it's just wonderful. And I think the Marriage Supper of the Lamb is going to have food from everywhere. Oh, I, I hope so. Because I tell you what, a, 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 a little bit of curry and some tandoori chicken goes a long way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by that notion. And, and Eva, you, you began to touch on this, the idea of the capacity to understand how to love and communicate the gospel cross-culturally. And sometimes we think that only means people that look different than us, that speak different than us, that come from different parts of the world than us. But sometimes even that capacity cross-culturally might be between the individual who's highly educated, smack dab in the middle of Silicon Valley, and is resistant to the gospel, to the individual perhaps who has been raised as a nun, meaning they've never been exposed to the gospel at all, their parents didn't take them to church, they're not necessarily hostile towards religion or Christianity, but they don't have an opinion either way. They're, they're, you know, what's the old saying? They're, they're either, neither an atheist nor an agnostic. And so the ability, I think, to be able to, as Paul said, be all things to all men that I might win some, I think is, is a critical skill. And particularly given the, the changing face of not just the Bay Area, but even the world where it's no longer just isolated national communities that, that we are literally, whether we like globalism or not, is not the point. The fact that we see different people from different places all around us, this is part of normal living. Would you say that that capacity to know how to love and communicate the gospel cross-culturally to the broader definition is really a skill set that all of us need? Oh, I think that's an absolute necessity because we begin with the end in mind, right? What does the end say? Revelation 7, 9, and every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be gathered before the throne. So we're really just getting ready for that final worship service in which we need to bring the gospel to the least and the lost. There are people who open their eyes this morning and they've never heard of Jesus and they might live across the street. That's the crazy thing about the Great Commission. It's now from here to the ends of the earth to here to across the street because the world has come to us. And the Great Commission 
has never been closer within reach because we just need to be obedient, open our eyes and say, Lord, I don't know what to say. And so we start by saying, hi, I'm Sam. What's your name? This is my dog, Snowman. And Snowman is amazing because he introduces us to people from everywhere and he's cute to everyone. He's the icebreaker, no pun intended. <laughs> so then what I think I hear you saying is that this capacity to be able to, to cross culturally know how to adopt and to communicate and to share, maybe not only a necessity in a sense in terms of effective witnessing and, and being what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus, but I would imagine this is also kind of, um, what should we call it, rehearsal for for the end times, because there's going to be a day when, you know, Christ all calls us to heaven, and it's not going to look like just, well, here's the section where all of the Presbyterians sit, the Methodists are over there, and whomever. But in fact, all of those labels are going to disappear, and we're all simply going to be individuals that have been bought with a price for whom Christ died and has redeemed, and now we're seated there, joint heirs with the Son, heirs of the Father, as as the true bride of Christ. And so in some respects, this is almost rehearsal for what our eternity experience is going to look like, would you say? That's exactly right, Craig. And I would say that, you know, sitting in this place of curiosity and listening well, being people who are warm and welcoming really allows us to sit well with the nations, with people who are different, with people who have different opinions, with people who are from different cultures or even um, age groups is really honestly being curious about their lives and wanting to get to know them and then being able to lean into participating in their lives in ways that God invites us because we're so curious about um, who they are in the world and what their joys are and what their sorrows are. And I think that's the thing that everybody has. And I think we live in a world that focuses on the differences. And the reality is these are people who love their families, who love their children, who want the same things that you and I want, but sometimes because of a language gap or a cultural gap, people focus on the differences instead of just getting to know them as people, just like Jesus. He loved them. And like Evie said, you know, they have sorrows, they have joys. Can we enter into that space and just have a conversation and then be praying as we talk, Lord, what do you want me to say? How can I love these people? Evie, Sam, you have demystified something that so many struggle with and and we hear it all the time you know i would i would be happy to go out and and share my faith more but i just don't feel properly equipped i'm not a theologian i i haven't studied scripture the way pastor did i i never went to moody bible institute i have a hard time memorizing scripture what if they ask me a question i can't answer and so sometimes i think that notion of my faith being something very private and personal just becomes an excuse. And yet, Evie, as you pointed out, if we just want to take an opportunity to lean into their lives and recognize that, you know, some plant the seed, others water, and yet for others the harvest, and and perhaps take the stress off of us and just say, you know, lean in, engage, uh, a kind word, hey, the neighbor that's hurting, uh, gee, can I pray for you? That that this is far less complicated than we want to make it. And then maybe it's the enemy himself who tries to overcomplicate the entire process that therefore then drives so many Christians into the closet, meaning that we're afraid to 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 expose others to who we are as a believer in Jesus. And, and we just feel that this whole discipleship thing is just way over our heads because we're not 
an expert at it. And yet, you know, you look back in the beginning, uh, Paul wasn't an expert either, and he winds up being the principal author of the New Testament and uh, arguably one of the most significant leaders of the early church. And yet some might say back from a historical perspective, he would have been the last guy anybody would have chosen for that role. And yet God knew. And you know whom he calls, he equips. That's right. That's right. And I feel like our humility as followers of Jesus can really show up and shift those spaces where we might feel you know, less confident or uncomfortable because if someone does ask us a question that we don't know the answer to, it is so profound to be able to say, you know, I'm really not sure about that, but I love that question. Can I get back to you on that? We don't have to be people who know everything. We can be people who admit, hey, I'm human. I don't have all the answers. Or, hey, you know what? I've thought about that as well. Or, boy, there was a point in my life where I had a similar question. And to be able to share our life stories, that is something we all have to bring to the table, is our own lives. And organically sharing the ways that God has changed us or shifted us. I mean, when I share with somebody how I had to make a repair, how I showed up in a space where I was not patient or kind the way that I wanted to be as a follower of Jesus and had to then turn around and say, you know, I did not accurately represent Jesus right there. Or, wow, I did not show up as kind as I would want to. And I am so sorry about that. Like, I want to treat you with respect and kindness always. And that's just not how I showed up right now. That makes a profound difference. And that is something we all can do because we all make mistakes. We all show up in imperfect ways in our humanity and we can own that. And I think that's something that shows how different um, somebody who follows Jesus can be because we're willing to admit that being human makes us show up these ways. But because we live forgiven, we don't have to carry the shame. We can make the repairs. We can see restoration. We can see redemption and we can watch God heal in beautiful ways. And, you know, this restorative process, again, Paul talked about work out your salvation, meaning that, yes, while coming to Christ, that that is a, a, a single experience, so to speak, but the process of becoming that new creation in Christ Jesus, of putting off the old man and, and learning to, to change your thinking and, and, and to put on the mind of Christ, that's a process. Thank God that the Lord was gracious and wise enough instead of saying, okay, I'm going to save you, but once you become saved, one false move, one mistake, and that's it, you're out. The totality of his work on the cross, capable not only of forgiving us and reconciling us to the Father, but to know, too, that he extends his grace, that when we mistake, make mistakes along the way, that he's capable and just to forgive us and he's in the restorative business. I mean, what, what, a, what a delight to know that God says, hey, I know you've made some mistakes. I had many, many years of watching the children of Israel making mistakes. And therefore, I decided, you know what? I got a new plan. And, and thank God we're able to experience the, the, the joy of the new covenant. And I think that those kind of lessons, and I have to wonder for both of you, because you have children, and, and, and Sam, you were involved in youth ministry. Isn't it important to even instill some of these values in our children at the earliest of an age to understand that when you make a mistake, it's not that you've made the mistake, it's to go back and be able to recognize you've made the mistake, ask for forgiveness, change your ways, reach out in love and in reconciliation. I think that goes a lot farther than simply somebody who says, yeah, I made a mistake. Oh, well, end of story. 
Yeah, I, I think th- how we flesh this out in our families is ground zero. In our own family, uh, you say, you know, we're parents. This is one of the really rough stories for us. When we moved up here, uh, we have a daughter that we adopted from birth. And uh, the birth mom we had known since she was four years old. She was in our youth group uh, back in Georgia. And when she was 17, she called us and said, hey, I'm pregnant. I really want to keep this little girl, but I can't. I don't have the support I need. And you guys are the only ones I trust to be able to to adopt her. Wow. And so we were there at the hospital at birth, and we raised uh, our daughter. And it, it was great because we lived out the gospel. She was part of our ministry. Uh, when we had our friends over, she was playing with the kids and we're talking to the parents. And and so there's uh, a, a, an amazing uh, vitality of Jesus just in our family and people. People would be drawn to that and they would wonder what we had. Uh, but when we moved up here to the Bay Area in the middle of COVID, it was really hard because we moved away from everything she ever knew. And for 11 years, we actually kept up that promise to the birth mom to keep an open relationship. And so we were back and forth every year sharing and, and visiting with grandparents and uh, on the birth mom side. And so when we got here in the middle of COVID away from everything she'd ever known, there was something in her that longed to be with her birth mom. And then her birth mom had a little boy. And part of her, I think asked the question, why did, he stay, and she didn't let me stay. And so we began this agonizing process of praying, Lord, you know, what we have, you've given to us. We're not owners, we're stewards. Is this something that you're asking us to do? Are you asking us to reunite our daughter? And the agonizing part of being a parent sometimes is seeing things that we never thought or dreamed of with our kids happen. And so we made an agonizing choice to reunite our daughter with her birth mom. And it's really, it's changed us as people. It's changed me as a pastor because now I have a pain and a grief in me that affects my preaching. It affects the way I handle grief with other people. I I had a, a woman come to me and say, you know, years ago I lost my husband and somebody at church said, don't worry, you'll get over it. I'm like, are you serious? People just because people are from church doesn't mean they're gonna they're not gonna say stupid things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we need Jesus to inform our grief. How did Jesus handle grief? He sat with people and he and he wept with them, even even when he knew he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. And so I, I was able to say to this woman, you know, it's okay to weep. It's okay to grieve. And she was just so blessed because she felt like she had permission from the senior pastor to be able to experience that grief and sit in that and also know that there's a joy. And, and so I, I would say, you know, in terms of our family, um, what, what God has done is, is, has been huge in helping us process our grief. And, you know, even in the midst of our, of our grief and our pain, whatever that form that may take, that um, God's got a bigger plan afoot here. And you just alluded to something a moment ago, how sometimes these experiences, while we might struggle to try to make sense of them, we can take a step back and say, yeah, but you know, 
as a result of this, the Lord has, has, has fine-tuned my sense of awareness of the pain of others that has now given me an ability to be able to speak hope and encouragement to them when they felt so hopeless because there's a relatability that I now have. And, and, and suddenly now God has opened up a door for a whole different ministry path, maybe not one that you invited or wanted or expected, but a whole new ministry path to be able to bring encouragement and hope to parents who are hurting for a variety of reasons. That is so true. I feel like when we made that choice to show our church what redemptive love looks like, we opened this place up for everyone to be able to lean into, okay, are we people that sit well with others? Do we allow for the grief and the joy? Are we willing to sit in the turmoil and agony of the crucifixion, waiting with great hope and anticipation for the resurrection in the ways that we as our families and as our country and as our communities are experiencing loss and grief. I mean, COVID was hard on people and cancer is hard on families and Alzheimer is hard on families and, and children who walk away from our families is difficult. All of these things open us up to being able to experience our relationship with God in a deeper and more sacred and holy way. And then to be able to offer that to those around us who are also grieving. And so while this is an incredibly painful season for us, because it's been a year since we've seen her, I would say that we have absolutely relished the way that God has used this to make our church a place where people feel welcome and seen and heard and valuable and understood in the midst of whatever they're going through in their lives, that it's a place they feel like they can share and that they're going to be loved well by their, you know, pastor and his wife who know what it is to sit in really hard places um, with compassion and empathy. I think there's probably some of your listeners out there right now that are really struggling mm -hmm. and they've got their own story. Mm -hmm. They've got their own hurt, their own pain. And I think what we would say to them is that, you know, we don't like the chapter that we're in right now with the grief that we continue to experience. And I've never faced anything more excruciating than, than this separation that we've had from our little girl. But what I also know is that God is not done writing the story. Amen. And if it's not good yet, God's not done yet. And you know what? As we lean into our faith and trusting God that he's got a bigger plan and he's got the 30,000-foot-high view that we don't, God in the end is going to be glorified. And we may have to go through a little bit of the, the fellowship of his sufferings along the way. But I think in that process, it deepens us, it refines us, it draws us closer to him. And Pastor Sam, you mentioned this, it really helps to fine tune our capacity to relate to others that are hurting and therefore be able to communicate to them the hope that lies within us and how that same hope is available to them through Christ Jesus. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about with that hope is, is that a full third of the Psalms are laments. 
And we, we have a culture in American culture that has tried to keep a stiff upper lip and just be positive, but we have forgotten how to suffer and sit with each other. And I love what Tim Keller said. He said, it's a sin to complain to someone else, but when you complain to God, that's a prayer. And so when we bring our complaints to God, when we bring our hurts to God, we lay out our argument, then we turn and in trust, and then we have the opportunity to see what he's doing. But God's big enough to hear our hurts, to sit with us, and for us to be able to sit with each other. And not just our church friends, how about our neighbors and other people, or or maybe the Trader Joe's checkout person's having a hard day. Do we sit with them in the 30 seconds or two minutes we have with them and go, wow, how's your week? Oh boy, you know, it's, and you have this empathy that you can care for the people that God puts in your path in your everyday life. People do have joys and they do have sorrows. And it's a lot easier to spend time, I think, in the joys than the sorrows, but it's a deep work that our world is longing for. Well, this holiday season in particular, uh, Pastor Not Near Us, there's undoubtedly folks that would say, you know, hearing this conversation, I kind of feel like I, I want to get back involved in church again. And I'm, and I'm interested in learning more about the life and ministry and the body of Christ uh, uh, functioning and flowing at Centerville Presbyterian Church. Just take a minute, if you would, and tell us a bit about service times, what God is doing, and the opportunities for not only engagement, but ministry at Centerville Presbyterian. Sure. Well, we have church every Sunday morning at 1030, and we're also online at cpcfremont.org, and you can watch anytime, but we would really love to meet you in person. There's nothing like being able to give you a hug or a high five or a handshake and say, welcome home. Uh, Sometimes I, I ask people, do you have a church home? And if they say no, I say, well, welcome home because we want to be a warm place that uh, shares life, equips disciples, and engage community. And that's our vision. I love that we're a historic church with a fresh vision that says we want to make disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. And this happens as we share life with people. We equip disciples, help them put down roots in who Jesus is, and then we turn around and engage community, which brings us back to sharing life. And so every Sunday at 1030, So one of the things I love that we do is games at the park at Dusterberry Park in Fremont. And the Saturday before the first Sunday of the month, we just get out and play with our kids. And it's a great time to meet the community. Imagine doing outreach outside the four walls of the church. So we want to go hang out, meet our community. And so if you want to come to the park before you come to church, we'd love to meet you there too. And I love that we have opportunities for caring for children who can't afford tutoring. Maybe they come from underprivileged families. And so we have a tutoring program. So if you have a heart for teaching and helping children, we do that as well. And as we, again, really believe that it's important to reach the nations, we've got a ministry that cares for the Afghan community and we teach them English. And we're always looking for people to come and care for the children while the men and the women learn English and um, feel cared about. So every every Sunday before church at 10 o'clock, we've got coffee and donuts out. I would love to meet you. I'd love to get to know your name. I'd love to hear how we can pray for you. But I'd love to know what your passion is and what you want to learn and how you want to serve. And I think the main thing is, how do we set people free to do what God created them to do? Greet you in the back of the church with a hug if you want one. 
I love it. That's my place as people come in. I love it. Well, as you've heard, multiple opportunities to both grow and serve at Centerville Presbyterian Church. They meet Sundays again at 1030 a.m., 4360 Central Avenue. Just across the street from the DMV. So if you know where Our Lady of the DMV is, we're across the street. Information available, you can call the church directly at area code 510-793-3575 or see them on the web at cpcfremont.org. That's CPC for Centerville Presbyterian Church, cpcfremont.org. If you are perhaps somebody who has said, you know, I've kind of hesitated going into church because I just don't know if they'll get me or if they'll understand the challenges that I face, the things that I've been through. I hope you've really heard the heart of Evie and Sam, not near us today, and uh, where their heartbeat is, um, not only in their own life experience, but where their heartbeat is for other people, and uh, their eagerness to want to share and to care and to love and to be Jesus with skin on. So we invite you to come on down Sunday morning and check them out. Centerville Presbyterian Church. Thank you so much for both of you spending some time with us today. Pastor, it's been an absolute delight. Thanks so much, Craig. Thank you. There's this part of of Peter, the book of Peter. It's uh, chapter 3 in the second book of Peter. That he writes this story, and and he says... We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And I I want you to know that we're not making these things up. We saw these things happen. And why is it important that I tell you what Peter said? Because even though the book of Mark is named after Mark, the guy who penned it, it's church tradition and commonly understood that it was Peter behind the pen of Mark. And these were Peter's eyewitnesses' experiences. And we, if you go back to the first week in the series of Mark, you can see all the relationships that Mark had with the early disciples. And so we see Peter saying, we didn't make this stuff up. It was amazing. And in verse, I think it's 3, 18 or 19, he said these, there was this time on the mountain when we heard God speaking to Jesus, God the Father speaking to Jesus, and it changed us. There was this experience that authenticated the work of the prophets. When we heard those voices, when we saw the things that Jesus did, those were foundational moments for us. And so in this story, we're looking at one of those moments in Peter's life, in the disciples' life, that marked them with a foundational understanding that they could be filled with peace, no matter what life threw at them. How would you like to be marked with that kind of peace? You remember where you were in 9-11? You remember those, those events were so clear? Some of you remember when Kennedy was shot? I remember when the space shuttle blew up. What's a, what's a current event that happened recently? Uh, not too long ago, uh, if you were in Israel, you would remember the day that Hamas busted through the border 
every person in Israel their own personal 9-11. You can go around the world and people can look at those crystallizing moments and they can think through the day in terms of that news event. And I think the disciples could think through their life event. They would remember that just before this event that Jesus had had a full day of teaching. He was teaching from the boat. And then as evening came, after all of this teaching, instead of bringing the boat into shore and getting off with his disciples and going somewhere to get, get, get food or camp for the night, Jesus said as evening came to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So, so G- whose idea is it to go across the lake? It's Jesus' idea. So they took Jesus in the boat and starting out, they le- leaving behind the crowds, and, and, and there's this random thought that Peter has through Mark, going, oh and yeah, there were some other boats around us too. They were there. But soon a fierce storm came up. And high waves were breaking into the boat. You can just imagine Peter is, is, is sharing the story, recounting with the disciples. He's like, and then you'll never guess what happened next. It's like this fierce storm came up. And just for context, to understand the Sea of Galilee, if you Google Gal- Galilee, you will find out that it is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And so it makes it very unique. This lake, it's probably about seven miles by, by uh, 13 miles, eight by 14, somewhere in there. And, and it's a low 700 feet below sea level. And it's got hills on one side that, that, that are going up maybe, maybe on one side, maybe 2,500 uh, feet. Uh, on another side, 1,000 feet. So, so this warm air, can, this cold air comes down the mountains as the sun is setting. And it mixes with the warm air over that lake. And this squall comes up. And, and this is a, such a shallow lake. It's about 150 feet deep. In some places, maybe max of 200 feet deep. And so have you ever churned up a kiddie pool? Right? Not hard to do, right? And the kids love it. Okay? In this case, the disciples didn't love it. Okay, there's this storm that comes in so fast. The sun's setting. The sun's going down. This cold air starts coming in, mixing in with the warm air. And these boats around this time, they're fishing boats. And so if you ask me what like a Toyota Camry or a a Ford Explorer is like, just I say, give me the years and I'll explore it. Uh, I didn't didn't mean that. That wasn't not intentional. Pardon the pun. Um, and so you kind of you get an idea about the model. Okay, my, my, grandf- my great-grandfather had a fishing boat on a fjord in, the Bergen, in Bergen on the Sognafjord in Norway. And, and it, was a, it was a kind of fishing boat that everybody had. And, and back in that time, these fishing boats, the common fishing boats that the disciples probably had, from what we can tell from archaeology is this was probably about maybe a, a 20-foot boat, maybe a 24-foot boat. It's not long. It's, it's maybe about eight feet wide. It might have a, a spot in the middle where about four people could row and they have a mast there. And there's the front and the back, and it's only about four and a half feet deep. And it holds maybe about 15 people max. So throw the disciples in there, that's 12, plus Jesus, that's Baker's Dozen. And, and, and you've got a really weighed-down boat. It's, it's, it's kind of taking a lot of weight. Now, it can still take on fish, all these kind of things, but it's kind of riding low. And so this big storm comes up. It's unexpected, and, a, and, and these high waves are breaking into this little boat. 
And it began to fill with water. Some of you, if you're good with your imagination, put yourself in the boat. How are you feeling? Are you terrified? The water is spraying in you in the face. I don't think that they have all these buckets in the boat. Maybe they have a bucket in the boat, but they're just right, trying to bail. They're being filled with terror. They have expert fishermen. And so they're kind of used to storms. But what about the tax collector and the zealot? Are they used to it? I don't know if they got swim lessons. But this isn't just any storm. This is a fierce storm. The water is filling the boat. How are they feeling? Terrified. So before we move on, whoa, whose idea was this? This was Jesus' idea. And some, so contrary to popular belief that when you trust Jesus, everything's going to be smooth sailing. That is not the Christian life. It is not the Christian experience. When you step into obedience, the disciples obeyed Jesus without hesitation. They did what he said and they went where he asked them to go. And there's going to be times in your life where you feel like, I have prayed about this. I have asked for good counsel. I've had good advice on this. And things are going bad. Things are not going my way. They're not good. They're hard. I made this decision. And now I am in rough seas. Remember we said last week that promise that Jesus made that if you trust in him, everything will go rosy? Yeah, you're right, right. No, because he never made that promise. He said, in, in this world, you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Amen. And I don't know what you're going through right now or what you have gone through or what you're going to go through. Some of you in this room, I know one of you had a stroke and now the other one is going in for a biopsy. And it's a lot. And others of you have struggled with cancer or maybe struggling with cancer now. Some of you may be working, looking for a job and there doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon. Some of you are, are wrestling with issues with your children. And you can't see to the other side of the lake. You're in the storm and you're not sure what's going to happen. And life is filled with this uncertainty and the waves are crashing in the boat and the boat is filling up with water and you may feel like you're going to drown. And maybe you're filled with fear. But you look around the boat and you're not alone because everybody else is freaking out too. They're all terrified. They're all going, what's going on? They're bailing as fast as they can. But this was Jesus' idea, so he's had a tough day. Let's let him sleep. So they took the boat and they started out leaving the crowds behind. The other boats followed. This fierce storm comes out. It begins to fill with water. And the waves are just about to take this boat down. At least that's what it feels like. So Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Isn't that a nice detail? <laughs> this, is a hu- this is a human detail about Jesus because we, a lot of times we think Jesus was just only God or we think about him as only man, but Jesus was 100% God and 100% man and he, he was this, this divine mystery who got tired because he had a really full day. 
And he, he just had demonstrated his sovereignty, his power, his authority over sickness, over demons, over all these things that other people couldn't figure out. Jesus spoke to it with authority. And whatever it was, whether sickness or demons, it obeyed him. Interestingly, this is the only time in Scripture that we ever find Jesus sleeping. Did you know that? I Googled it. I did an exhaustive, I did an exhaustive concordance search. I checked it out in the Hebrew and the Greek. And you know what the word sleep means? It means sleeping. <laughs> he was so tired, he could also be interpreted dead. He was dead tired. I mean, he was zonked. And he's resting. So let's just pause there just a moment. What does, that, what does that tell you about Jesus? He's tired. Yeah. He's not a morning person? I don't know. Uh, no, he's a morning person because he get up to pray. We see that in other parts of Scripture. Always use Scripture to interpret Scripture if you want to understand the full counsel of Scripture. We don't, just come, we don't come to Scripture in this book with our own ideas because we've been given revelation from God about the stories for, because we need information from the outside in order to see the inside appropriately and accurately, and that's what God's given us. And so we see Jesus sleeping, and, and it tells me, I think, that Jesus has a lot of trust in, well, these guys are professional fishermen. They can handle a trip across the lake. But even more so, I think he has an amazing relationship with God, his Father. And he's thinking, hey, we created this. This is nothing to worry about. I can sleep in peace. Did you know that Jesus can sleep in peace in the middle of a storm? I think the irony is we can't sleep while Jesus, we can't rest while Jesus is sleeping in the boat in the middle of the storm because we're freaking out. Maybe we forget that he's in the boat. See, we've already heard the whole story. But when you're in the middle of the story, we're in the middle of the story. Maybe you're in the middle of your chapter that you do not like and you don't see the end yet. But we know how this is going to go. But Jesus is completely trusting his father. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat, completely at rest. Things are going to be fine. Because he's in control. His father's got everything. And there's a, there's a rest about him. And, and, and maybe you're not physically in the boat. We're not physically in the boat like Jesus was there. But right now we might feel like Jesus ascended in heaven. He's asleep at the wheel. <laughs> Jesus got the wheel, but he fell asleep. And he's not really paying attention to what we're going through right now. So the disciples woke him up, shouting. Now, have you ever been woken up by someone shouting? There's there's a proverb in the the Bible that says, uh, to him who who blesses his neighbor loudly in the morning, it shall be taken as a curse. Uh, You know, it's no fun to be woken up. But in the middle of the storm, it makes sense. We don't know how Jesus woke up, but here's how he got woken up. Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Hmm. Well, he obviously is either unaware of the storm because he's so zonked out, or he can't comprehend that the boat is filling up with water. He's so tired this water splashing around isn't even phasing him. He must not care. Maybe you feel like that. 
Maybe you feel like God doesn't care about what you're going through. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Because Jesus came to this planet, fast forward to what we know. He came because he cares. In in, in another translation it says, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? But we know from John 3 that for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. When you trust in Jesus, when you get up there, you want that peace, you fall into Jesus' arms. You say, I'm betting everything on you. You don't have to have a lot of faith, but you're trusting him that he is Lord of creation. Teacher, don't you care that we drowned? Yes, he does. And he exemplifies it at the end of his ministry when he dies on the cross, paying for your sin, for my sin, the disciples' sin, for taking away that thing that separated us from God, all of our wrongdoings, the way we have violated God's perfect law. And he said, I am going to, in exchange, take all of your bad and give you all of my righteousness and all of my goodness. When God the Father looks at you, he's going to say, that's my beautiful child. And nothing can ever separate you from him, from me. And, and, and Jesus cares. And ironically, in a crazy twist of irony, Jesus is sleeping here, the only time he's sleeping. And then, and then the, the, the storm of sin is going to come against Jesus on the cross, and he's going to weather this storm for them and all of humanity. But when he invites his dear friends at the end in the Garden of, e, uh, of Gethsemane to pray with him just for an hour, to support him in his time of distress, what do they do? If you know your Bibles, you know that they fell asleep on him. Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Don't you care that we were perishing? And Jesus woke up. I don't know what kind of mood Jesus was in when he woke up. But he woke up and he rebuked first the wind and then the waves. Just as he had sickness, just as he had the demonic, and he said, Silence, be still. And suddenly, suddenly, Mark loves to use this word, Peter is this person of urgency. It's like immediately, you'll never believe how quickly this happened. And in this shallow lake, the waves and the wind died down. This is interesting because. These guys were Jewish and they would have known the Old Testament law. And remember, I, I said in, in, in Peter, he's reflecting back on this, this experience he had with Jesus in, in 2 Peter 3. And he's like, the testimony of the prophets came true in Jesus. And in Deuteronomy, thousand years before, Moses said, the, the, the Bible says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. They knew that there was someone coming, a Messiah, who was going to be predicted, who was going to come into the world, and the people needed to listen to him. Listen, listen to what Exodus 14, 14, what does Moses say to the people as he's about to part the Red Sea as the Egyptian army is chasing after them? Have you ever been cornered? Have you ever been put in a really difficult situation? The people of Israel knew what that was like. They were being 
sought, they, they're, they're about to be killed and there's nowhere to go. And Moses stood in front of the people and he just said this, the Lord will fight for you. You will need only to be still. And in the same stillness, he commanded the wind and the waves. He shows us from the Old Testament that we can be still and the Lord will fight for us. Listen to Mark 440. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Well, I don't know, Jesus. Did you see those waves coming in? Did you see all? We're, we're soaked. And he says to his disciples, do you still have no faith? This is kind of a hard one. But if you think about it from Jesus' perspective, it's like, what have we already been through? Do you guys remember earlier in the day when I was doing all those things? Oh, you, you realize, you're coming to realize that, that I have authority over sickness and I can heal people that no one can heal. I have authority over the demonic. I, can, I, can, I, have, I have sovereignty. And, and then when your life is marked with this trust that I can do those things, your life is going to be filled with peace when these other things come your way. Oh, you didn't know I was also sovereign over creation. That there's nothing in this world that can separate you from from the love of God. Romans 8, write it down and go soak on that this week. Because that's the kind of power that God has. So it might feel kind of harsh. But imagine their shock and surprise when he says, do you still have no faith? And the disciples were absolutely terrified, as I think you and I would have been too. And, and, and they asked this question. And this is, central, this is a central question to the book of Mark, because it goes about the identity of Jesus that makes him different than any other man that ever walked the planet, because he was all God and he was all man. And who he is is central to his claims. And if you get this wrong, you'll get everything else wrong. And Jesus is talking in his teaching, and you'll see just at the end of this, just before this story, Jesus spoke in parables to all the crowds because he was satisfying their curiosity, because all they wanted was the bread and the healing and the miracles, But to those who wanted more, more was available. And when you recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, He is who He claims to be, the unique Savior of the world, your Savior, your Lord, it changes everything because there's nothing that doesn't obey Him. And in this case, even the wind and the waves. And you can imagine the disciples began to think back through rabbi, through through rabbinical, through the school, the synagogue school, and, and, and maybe Psalm 107, 28 and 29 came to their mind. And they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. And verse 29 says, he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Have you ever seen that prophecy? Did you realize that's connected? Because if you went to Jewish school, you might have put that together when that happened in front of you. You're like, oh, that verse we memorized as kids. He just did that. Wait, wait, what does verse 28 say? They cried out to the Lord. Oh my gosh, who is this? Is this the Lord? Proverbs 30, have you ever seen this? Verse 4. Listen to this in the context. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered the wind? Who's wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who's established the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son? Surely you know. Have you ever seen that? Write it down. Go look at it. 
This is so clear. If they would have thought back to the Psalms and the Proverbs, you see the prophecies of Jesus saying this divine God-man came down. He's the son of God. Something that totally blew the minds of the people of the day and still blows our minds today. Because Jesus came for you, he came for me, and this is the same question we're still wrestling with. So you see the prophecy from, from, uh, of how, how they were expected to get somebody who was like Moses but wasn't Moses. They, they, they see this kind of thing that he can even calm the storm. And then the last one is this looking back to you. There's this amazing parallel between Jesus. And remember we did the series in Jonah about a year and a half ago? Watch the parallels to this. Jonah's on a boat because he's fleeing the will of God. And Jesus was on a boat as he continued to fulfill the word of God, the will of God. Two, Jonah's presence on the boat was the reason the storm arose. Jesus' presence on the boat was the reason the storm became calm. Three out of five, Jonah was woken up but did not call upon the Lord. Jesus woke up and he was the Lord upon whom the disciples called upon for help. Amen? Verse, the fourth one, G, Jonah's on the boat in order not to go to the Gentiles in Nineveh. Jesus is on a boat in order to go to Gentile territory. We're going to see next week in Mark 5. Actually, you're going to do the passage after that, but next week, Mark 5, look at that. <laughs> and finally, Jonah had to be delivered from death, and Jesus delivered everyone else from death. Listen to what, Mark, what Tim Keller says about this. There's this parallel between Jonah, who they knew about, and Jesus, whom they're still learning. Jesus and Jonah are both on boats. They're both overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storm are almost identical. Jesus and Jonah are asleep. In both stories, the sailors and the sleepers say, we're going to die. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're going to (laughs) die. And maybe sometimes you feel like whatever you're going through right now, you're going to die. But in both stories, the sailors then become even more terrified when the storm was calmed. And these two almost identical stories with this key difference, Tim Keller points out, he's so brilliant, I love this. In the midst of the storm, Jonah says to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. And so they threw him into the sea. Remember that? If you haven't read the book of Jonah, go back and read it. It's just a few chapters. It's amazing. But that doesn't happen in Mark's story. Or does it? The Mark, Mark is showing that the stories aren't actually different when you stand back a bit and look at the rest of the story with Jesus in view. Matthew's gospel, his, his rendition of this account, Jesus says one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus himself makes this connection. And he's referring to himself. He's saying, I'm the true Jonah. And this is what he meant. Someday, I'm going to calm all the storms. I'm going to still all the waves. What are the waves and the storms in your life that you're still waiting for Jesus to calm? Jesus is saying, I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going to break brokenness and I'm going to kill death. How can he do that? He can only do it because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm. Are you, are you with me? 
under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. And Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing, the storm that wasn't calmed until he swept it away. And he swept that storm away for you, and he swept that storm away for me, and he swept that storm away for the people you know and love. And if the sight of Jesus bowing his head in the ultimate storm isn't burned into the core of your being, you'll never say, if, that, if, that's, if, if you see Jesus on that boat in the core of your being, you'll never say, God doesn't care. Because you know you're in the boat with him, and more importantly, he's in the boat with you. Turn your name and say, he's in the boat with me. If you know that he didn't abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think that he would abandon you in smaller storms? The smaller storms that maybe you're experiencing right now. Write this down in your notes. Go back and hang out in Romans 8 this week. And think about God's love for you. You know, it's interesting. I want to end with this. What does Jesus rebuke his disciples for? Their lack of faith. He didn't say, hey, guys, I know there's a lot of water coming in, but can you explain the substitutionary atonement? Hey, explain your eschatology and your Christological view on theology and your doctrine. I need to make sure you got your MDivs before I calm the storm. He never shames them for their lack of knowledge. He doesn't say, you guys just don't know enough. He's saying you guys don't trust enough. And if we want to be a church that, re- that, that is, if you want to be a person who experiences the goodness of God and the richness of his grace, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of trust and obedience. And if you want to see God show up, We live out the Great Commission by teaching them to obey. And obedience is God's love language. And we reach in, we step up, and we say, God, I trust you. This is scary. This is hard. You know the stuff I'm going through. And at the end of the day, you're going to say, who is this man? This is the man who went into the ultimate storm for you and me. So if you've never prayed this prayer, just say, God, I don't have a lot of faith. I don't have a lot of knowledge, but with little faith I have. I want to confess you as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, you know the storms that I'm going through right now, and I'm going to trust you that you're in the boat. Even the winds and waves obey you. You're sovereign. I want to be marked with peace. The peace that transcends all understanding that will guard my heart and mind in Christ. Senior pastor of Centerville Presbyterian Church of Fremont, Pastor Sam Nodneris. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week.